Hey, Bob Squad. If you or someone you know is in Anchorage, Alaska, check out Redeemer United Reformed Church. Redeemer is currently holding two services each Sunday at 2.30 and 4 p.m. at Christ Our Savior Lutheran Church at 1612 Ocean View Drive, just off Old Seward Highway in southwest Anchorage. For more information or to get in touch, visit akredeemer.org. That's akredeemer.org. This is the Bobcast, a podcast exploring Reformed theology through the works of Herman Bovink. Hey there, Bob Squad. Welcome back to a rip-roaring, exciting, fascinating thing that we do here in talking about stuff related to Jesus. Rip-roaring. We use that one a lot. We have to be careful. Well, that's because we both rip and roar. Andrew. But it's just if everything is rip-roaring, then nothing is rip-roaring. You know what rip-roaring sounds like? Rick-rolling? Rick yes. Oh! Insert clip of Rick-roll. <laughs> yeah, we're not paying for the rights for that. <laughs> our listeners, just pretend or, you know, bring up YouTube and Rick-roll yourselves on our behalf. That's we right. actually did a Rickroll during our wedding ceremony. That's genius. Heidi and I did. Another story for another day. You're a terrible person. I know. <laughs> Who are we? Well, we are Bobcast, and that is comprised of two individuals. One individual being myself, Caleb Castro. And I am another individual, Andrew Smith. And we are here coming together to talk about uh, a topic that we actually had started a couple weeks ago on uh, the Doctrines of the Covenant. In particular, we're now at the place of talking about the Covenant of Redemption. Uh, so you can listen to that first episode on the Covenant of Redemption if you haven't already. And you should, because if you don't, this one may not make a whole lot of sense. In fact, you might want to go back to the very start of this series on where we talk about definitions of covenant and different views in that. But if you've already... Listen to that and you're caught up. Today we're going to be continuing the discussion on what this covenant of redemption is. And last time we had gone through methodology and the place of the covenant of redemption in the theological loci, the theological division of topics. We pointed especially to uh, the John 17 as a base teaching for the covenant of redemption and how related it is to the doctrine of the Trinity. And so this week we're going to continue on. We're going to look at some other texts that either teach the doctrine of the covenant of redemption or, or at least attempted to be used that way. And we will also be looking at some of Bovink's arguments in favor of the covenant of redemption. And then time permitting, we will get into some objections. So if we don't get there, Heidi's going to have to cut that last part out. It's true. Or we lie. Yes. Okay. So one of the classic texts that's often appealed to in support of the covenant of redemption is Zechariah 6.13. 
probably because there's something of a name reference there to the Council of Peace, which is a term often used interchangeably with this covenant of redemption. So Zechariah 6.13 says, It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne and there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. So this is a text often appealed to to support the covenant of redemption. What's really interesting about it is that Herman Bovink in his treatment of the covenant of redemption actually does not find this to be a proof text that teaches the covenant of redemption. Yeah, and this is in opposition to, say, Caspar Olivianus, who in his exposition on the Apostles' Creed actually appeals to this text in connecting the Council of Peace, the Eternal Covenant, to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. We do know that this text is appealing to Jesus Christ, as you see there in verse 12, to whom this is what the Lord Almighty says, here is the man whose name is the branch, and he will branch off from his place and build the temple of the Lord. This is a particular reference to Jesus as the branch, the uh, the shoot of Jesse. But it is most properly speaking of Jesus Christ's incarnation and his earthly work, his earthly ministry, uh, and his active and passive obedience, ultimately. Uh, So it's not a direct appeal to the Council of Peace or to the uh, Covenant of Redemption. Though, if we do keep in mind Jesus' role as mediator and what that consists of, then we have to also think of how this affects the doctrine of the Incarnation. We have to keep in mind the connection of his two natures, of the inseparability and yet complete distinction of him as true God and true man. So this, in a way, does have something of a use for understanding the covenant of redemption, but it is not itself a proof text for it. Yeah, as Bovink says, this is on page 213 of volume 3 of the English translation of Reformed Dogmatics. The classic text, Zechariah 6.13, cited in support of this doctrine, does not prove anything. It only states that the Messiah, who unites in his person both the kingship and the priesthood, will consider and promote the peace of his people. So it is related to his incarnation and his work and his offices, but not so much with this covenant directly. That's actually even why Olivianus ends up treating it on the article of he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, the third article of the Apostles' Creed. Uh, He is properly locating it in connection with the Incarnation. And what he ends up doing with that is actually uh, then connecting this, not just with Christ as mediator, but his threefold office as prophet, priest, and king. So Olivianus is actually consistent with uh, Bobbing in this point, even though some may say otherwise. Now, it's also at this point that we're going to be a little snobbish and we should speak a little Latin because another title often used for the Covenant of Redemption or the Council of Peace is the Latin name Pactum Salutis. Pactum Covenant and Salutis is for salvation or redemption. So this is another term that you'll see commonly used to refer to this covenant and it's a term that Bovink uses And in fact, his treatment of it is under the heading Pactum Salutis. If you're looking for a section on Covenant of Redemption, you won't find it by name. You will find the Pactum Salutis. Yeah, and even that name, Covenant of Redemption, is 
really most popularized in uh, the 20th century. And later on, you know, after Bobbing's writing this, the Reform Dogmatics uh, in the second edition coming out in the first decade of the 1900s. But we want to see that there is a scriptural warrant for it. Just as last time at the end of uh, the previous episode, we went through John 17. We want to point out just a couple passages here that teach this pactum salutis. Right. I mean, there is a lot of it in John 17. Should be enough to convince you, but just in case, we'll give you some more. So one text that comes up and tying the covenant particularly to election is, of course, the famous passage on election predestination in Ephesians chapter 1. I'll read there beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. So we see here, again, an intra-Trinitarian work between the Father and the Son, for the purpose of our redemption. You see that in verse 9, according to the purpose which he set forth in Christ, and then in 10, as a plan for the fullness of time. We see here the close tie of the covenant of redemption to election, because again, what is the purpose of the covenant of redemption? It is the salvation, the redemption of a particular people for God's possession. And in appealing back to our previous episode where we spoke a bit about methodology, I want to point out again here that how we're to understand or what we're to know about the doctrine of predestination or what we also would call the divine decree of election in its relation to this plan of salvation and then how it's actually worked out through the covenant of grace in history, all that is to be understood through Jesus Christ. You see this repeatedly in this passage that Andrew just read, where the blessing that Paul gives and the attribution of the Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms is in relation to Jesus Christ. Being chosen is being chosen in him. The predestining and the adoptioning is through Jesus. Adoptioning? <laughs> adoptioning. If we're to turn it into a verb of uh, gerund. Uh, <laughs> so we have redemption. It's through him in his blood. The lavishing upon us of, of wisdom and understanding the knowledge of God is through and by Christ. And most importantly here in verse 9, it's Jesus Christ who made known to us the mystery of the Father's will according to his good pleasure. This is purposed in Christ. So again, this is why... The covenant of redemption is to be understood through a Christological lens, whereas we would otherwise have no concept of the mystery of this eternal counsel. It's revealed to us by Christ, the mediator. Another place where we see this is, again, in the Gospel of John, because this is a major and recurring theme in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 6, 
So this is immediately after, in verse 35, that Jesus has made his famous statement about being the bread of life. But then in 637, on down through verse 40, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So here we have this language of the Father giving a people to the Son. Now, again, we have to make the theology proper distinction between the Trinity ontologically and then the Trinity economically and what the persons of the Trinity are doing. And this is an example of that. We have the Father giving the Son a people. So the covenant of redemption is the agreement whereby the Father gives to the Son these people, and then the Son will raise them up on the last day. And Jesus here is basically uh, revealing what the promise had been in eternity. What you said there in verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. We have a, a promise here. Okay, we, we have a guarantee, and that guarantee is in Christ. So Jesus Christ's office, or rather his role in the covenant of redemption in eternity is a mediator who is both our head and our surety for salvation. It is secured before the foundations of the earth. This is why Jesus had said in verse 35 of John 6, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never go thirsty. And again, in verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me. So anyone who comes to him will never be lost. It is an eternal security, an eternal surety according to Christ's role. Yeah, and Bobbing summarizes this well. I'm going to read a short section here of Reformed Dogmatics. This is volume 3, page 214. Nevertheless, this doctrine of the pact of salvation, despite its defective form, so what he means is the lack of an explicit statement of it in Scripture, is rooted in a scriptural idea. For as mediator... So again, we have to be very clear on the economic distinction from the ontological but as mediator the son is subordinate to the father calls him his god is his servant who has been assigned a task and who receives a reward and we've seen these various things in looking at these texts for the obedience accomplished still this relation between the father and the son though most clearly manifest during christ's sojourn on earth was not first initiated at the time of the incarnation for the incarnation itself is already included in the execution of the work assigned to the son but occurs in eternity and therefore also existed already during the time of the Old Testament. And then he goes on to describe, for instance, Old Testament texts featuring the angel of Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, which is Christ appearing in the Old Testament. And then also Christ functioning in his office in the Old Testament, as some other New Testament texts point out. So, for instance, John eight fifty six, where your father Abraham rejoiced 
that he would see my day, Jesus speaking there. He saw it and was glad. Christ is already fulfilling that mediatorial role even in the Old Testament. What's going on in this divine council, what's going on in this covenant of redemption, this promise of salvation, is that it's not a guarantee of God to us, but Christ's guarantee of us to God. Or perhaps, you know, give a little nod to our Canadian Reformed brothers and sisters We're not talking about our salvation being secured by eternal justification. What we're saying is that we have an eternal mediator, and he is the guarantee according to who the Father has given him. So the crux of the covenant of redemption comes down to Jesus Christ as mediator in his work. A question we also have to look at as we consider this is, well, what about in our Reformed confessions? Do we have a basis for the covenant of redemption in them? Neither the three forms of unity or the Westminster Standards teach the covenant of redemption explicitly, and yet implicitly you can see the elements of it present. So we see this in the Canons of Dort, which is the work of the Synod of Dort. So that International Reform Synod of 1618 to 1619, the first head of doctrine dealing with divine election and reprobation, we see it in Article 6. The fact that some receive from God the gift of faith within time and that others do not stems from his eternal decision. For all his works are known to God from eternity... So they're quoting from Acts fifteen eighteen, and then also alluding to Ephesians 1. In accordance with this decision, he graciously softens the hearts, however hard, of his chosen ones, and inclines them to believe, but by his just judgment he leaves in their wickedness and hardness of heart those who have not been chosen. And in this especially is disclosed to us his act, unfathomable, and as merciful as it is just, of distinguishing between people equally lost. This is the well-known decision of election and reprobation revealed in God's word. This decision, the wicked, impure, and unstable, distort to their own ruin, but it provides holy and godly souls with comfort beyond words. And then continuing on into Article 7 on election... Election, or choosing, is God's unchangeable purpose by which he did the following. Before the foundation of the world, so note the eternal nature of it, by sheer grace, according to the free good pleasure of his will, he chose in Christ to salvation a definite number of particular people out of the entire human race, which had fallen by its own fault from its original innocence, into sin and ruin. Those chosen were neither better nor more deserving than others, but lay with them in common misery. He did this in Christ, whom he also appointed from eternity to be the, here's that word, mediator, the head of all those chosen, and the foundation of their salvation. So we see here this covenant mediation coming into view. And so he decided to give the chosen ones to Christ to be saved and to call and draw them effectively into Christ's fellowship through his word and spirit. In other words, he decided to grant them true faith in Christ, to justify them, to sanctify them, and finally, after powerfully preserving them in the fellowship of his Son, to glorify them. God did all this in order to demonstrate his mercy to the praise of the riches of his glorious grace." 
And then using some biblical evidences, as scripture says, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world so that we should be holy and blameless before him with love. He predestined us whom he adopted as his children through Jesus Christ in himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, by which he freely made us pleasing to himself and his beloved. So Ephesians 1, 4 through 6 again. And elsewhere, those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Romans eight thirty. So that's Canons of Door 1, 6 and 1, 7. And we see here this eternal work, this eternal counsel between the Father and the Son. And then we also see the outworking of it in the covenant of grace, how that redemption is applied to us. So yeah, while the name covenant of redemption and the accuracy uh, in using that term covenant in terms of this eternal Trinitarian pact is disputed, there is, uh, just from the small sampling, scriptural and then uh, confessional warrant for this teaching. There is something going on or something that has gone on in eternity that affects the plan of salvation here in history. And we make sense of it in a logical ordering of sorts, um, as Romans 8.30 has shown. Now, nonetheless, there are those who disagree with the legitimacy of this covenant of redemption, which we have spoken of several times now. There's disagreements on one end with, uh, say, the Protestant Reformed churches, another wing of the Dutch Reformed tradition, that will have a tendency to on one end, equate the doctrine of election and the doctrine of covenant as the exact same thing. And so this affects how they understand then the covenant of grace, the actual outworking of the plan of salvation. On the other end, you'll have those who will strongly uh, or seemingly strongly dichotomize the eternal decree of election and the outworking of the covenant in history as the covenant of grace. In other words, a strong separation between covenant and election. This is a tendency of, I could say, some older theologians in the Canadian Reformed tradition, such as uh, Yella Faber and perhaps even uh, uh, Klaus Gilder in this way. Now, another thing we need to recognize, too, when we are weighing objections to the doctrine of the covenant of redemption, there are basically different degrees of objection. Some object merely to the fact that this is called a covenant. Although they would affirm the substance of the doctrine, because it's not explicitly called a covenant in Scripture, they don't want to call it a covenant either, even though they believe everything we would have talked about about an eternal counsel between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Then there are others who do make a more substantial objection, basically where they object to this doctrine on other grounds. Yeah, part of those grounds would be a question such as, is Jesus Christ the covenant head? So is he properly, if we're using the term covenant, such as like what we were talking about in one of the previous episodes on the definition of covenant, are we talking about this legal binding contract of promise and curse. Is Jesus Christ, or rather we should say, is the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, the other party from God that the covenant is made with? And then is he in, at the same time also then the representative of this covenant and how it affects man? You know, or is the covenant itself only something that can be understood as God's promise, as promiser, as suzerain, to man 
particularly fallen man, such as with Abraham. So who is the second party of the covenant? And who is that covenant representative? If God is the first party, is Christ the second party? And then do we then find our election through him as covenant head? So it can be a bit of a complex question. And again, it comes down to how are we going to understand the place of election in our theological systems and how it relates to Christ's office of mediator, his role as mediator, and then how that salvation comes down to us through him. So some have the are adverse to talking about Jesus as the head of the elect or as the head of the covenant. Perhaps there is some validity to that in the sense, but the theologian Gerardus Voss would say that the proper terminology in understanding this relationship between God Christ and his people as being placed in Christ's mediatorial office in that it's not so much that we call him covenant head as that he has two functions of mediation. One is that he is the mediatorial head and second that he is a mediatorial surety. So he is in a sense the representative of a promise made in eternity the promise and the plan of salvation. He's given his role. And then in that role, he guarantees our salvation. It's a complex subject. I'm trying to simplify it as much as possible. But basically, at its core, we're talking about making a good distinction of Christ's two natures and his economic role in his ministry on earth. What we want to focus on here is you know, how does Christ's mediatorial role relate to man in time? That is the key focus uh, for any of us, regardless of how we understand the covenant of redemption or the council of peace or the eternal pact. Whether you're PR or CanRC, URC, whatever, we want to be looking at Christ as the mediator. So a question that perhaps might be raised both by proponents and opponents of the doctrine of the covenant of redemption is, is this an essential doctrine? As mentioned before, the covenant of redemption is not explicitly stated as such in scripture or in the confessions, as we've argued so far. We, we think it is present implicitly in the canons of Dort and perhaps elsewhere in our confessions. Does this mean that one must hold to the covenant of redemption to be properly reformed, I guess? Not necessarily. As we've raised, there are some who have good faith objections that while they would affirm the necessary substance, could object terminologically and on other grounds. There are definitely elements of this covenant of redemption that are confessional and that are necessary, that there is an eternal decree of election, that this is worked out through Christ as mediator, as Caleb was just describing. So there's definitely pieces of this, at least, that, that need to be reformed for those who want to be reformed and confessional. Does this mean that it has to be held as covenant of redemption per se? Maybe not. We find that the covenant of redemption is helpful to formulate it this way. It's helpful pedagogically. It's helpful in explaining the relationship between these various elements of it. We already see here then that even in the Reformed tradition, in our concepts of covenant, 
you have different approaches in articulating the covenants. And this is something that we're going to continue to see and try to work out. So while the term covenant of redemption is something that may be uh, disagreed with, the content of it, the substance of its teachings have to be acknowledged as having scriptural basis. And we're going to see this same thing play out here in the covenant of works, which we'll be taking up next week. Right. There's been similar controversies and issues surrounding the covenant of works. Again, objections in name, objections in substance, and we will look at those when we get there. Right. So until then, we hope that this has been helpful and edifying uh, and that whether you're already convinced of the covenant of redemption, that we help point to some scriptural references and some tools for how to talk about it. Uh, You know, we we know this is a bit of a a heady subject, but we believe that at its very base, in which I think that we have clearly made the case for, its absolute necessity comes down to who God is and how he works. And we understand this through Jesus Christ. So if there's anything that you're to be left with at the end uh, of this episode, it's that. Again, thank you for listening. And we do hope that this has been helpful and edifying. And we'll uh, have a chance to discuss more next time. But until then, Toadzines. Toadzines. Thank you for listening to Bobcast. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and leave a five-star review where you get your podcasts. For the latest Bobcast news and updates, visit Bobcast.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Bobcast is a member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Subscribe to the Society of Reformed Podcasters feed to hear more great theological content. Music is City of God by Rudy Manrique. We hope you'll join us again next time.